When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome to the first day of the semi-finals here on the 2022 World Cup Daily Podcast, courtesy of Sports Social Podcast Network here on the What If Football YouTube channel. Yes, Lionel Messi, his World Cup dream, continues with a 3-0 evisceration of Croatia. Who will join them? Will it be the first African semi-finalist? Will it be a first African finalist? Morocco. Would it be Libler? Well, we'll find it all out in the next 30 minutes. Let's get stuck in. should know by now but if you don't know we are on the sports social podcast network anywhere where you get your podcasts and on youtube with this world cup daily podcast right up until the monday after the final not many episodes left to stuff into that can now that's every 5 a.m every 6 a.m the world cup great games podcast on patreon patreon.com forward slash what if football for that one we are running right the way up until friday so we've only got a couple more episodes of that of course all finals from here on in and we are still plowing through with the youtube shorts and youtube series predictors combined 11s and alternate football universes thank you very much if you watched any of the international football manager challenges that series is uh in the can now as well and now Let's get stuck in to Argentina 3, Croatia 0. Croatia unchanged in the same 4-3-3 as they were in the prior game. So essentially they were maybe preparing for a third 120 minutes with somewhat mostly the same 11. Meanwhile, Argentina brought back Nicolas Tagliafico because of suspension to Marcos Acuna and Leandro Paredes was brought back in as Argentina moved to a back four. Now, Argentina, of course, the more reputable of the teams, but on World Cup experience, you have to say that Croatia comfortably more 
of that one. Um, Tagliafico and Messi, I'm fairly certain, at least in the 11, maybe Paredes as well, um, as have experience over the final in 2014. Of course, most of the Croatian players will have had that experience in the 2018 final in losing that affair. The main question was, could Argentina handle Croatia's domination of the midfield, well, they lined up in a narrow four in midfield, almost akin to how Atletico Madrid would deploy that formation 4-4-2 back in the day, which is probably why Rodrigo de Paul was stuck out on the flank in the uh, right midfield role. Meanwhile, Alexis McAllister is as flexible as you get as a Brighton player, really playing left midfield, whilst you got Enzo Fernandez and Leandro Paredes there in the double pivot. Width was maintained, of course, from McAllister, who would naturally offer a bit more width in that left midfield role. Meanwhile, you've got Rodrigo de Paul, of course, tucking in to help with that numbers game in the middle of the park, whilst Molina bombed on from right back, which we saw a devastating effect, of course, in the prior game. And, of course, we saw it here today, especially for the second goal. So Argentina, as we, well, most of us expected, really, they were happy to let Croatia have the ball. There was a full Croatian possession for the first minute and um, pretty much in terms of the first half, that's, well, in terms of most of the game, really, that's how it went, really. You get Lionel Messi dropping in a lot, a lot before the, even before the opposition midfield to come and have a little taste of the ball. But for the majority of it, doing his old trick, having a wander around, a little stroll around the Lucille iconic stadium um, before, of course, bursts of pace, of class and everything else you'd expect from Lionel Messi. You have got Josko Vardiol uh, stepping out a great deal as well. So there is enough bodies whenever Messi does drop out. And to be fair, Vardiol is that type of ball carrying centre half. And for, for the most part in the first half, Croatia were incredibly press resistant and only got caught really on two moments of uh, of weakness, they controlled possession, they largely controlled the first half, but their problem became very obvious. It's been obvious for throughout the most of the tournament, really. The final third, the chance creation, the percentage of chances that they get on target from shots. I mean, we had the first shot on target really from Croatia was from an Ivan Perisic free kick from about 35 yards out that was never going to trouble Emi Martinez in a million years. Maybe in a mud bath where he's a bit of a divot and it might have skipped up into the top corner, but not here on a FIFA-mandated pitch in a World Cup semi-final. And I think Lovro Meyer may have got um, a deflected shot on, on goal uh, that Martinez had to save. But both of those chances came at 3-0 down and the game was well and truly wrapped up um, from both teams' perspective. Uh, even though Croatia had the majority of the ball, had the majority of the game, the possession, the territory almost, Argentina looked infinitely more dangerous. They had the first shot, which was a bit of a, a sight. A really Enzo Fernandez from distance, 25 minutes in. It was a very cagey open to the game, as you'd expect. It was a counter-attacking team in Argentina against what looked like a crossing although even the crossing let Croatia down in this game. Um, and apart from that, they looked somewhat dangerous from set pieces. Bruno Petkovic, when he came on in the second half, the first 15 minutes of it, he looked like he had one or two neat touches and Croatia were getting a bit more bodies in the box, but it all kind of did fall flat throughout the um, throughout the game for Croatia. There was no incisiveness, there was no... Well, there's no Mario Mandzukic. That's essentially the uh, the long and short of the defeat. And also the big question coming into this game for Argentina was, 
who could step up alongside Lionel Messi. Now, Argentina without Messi would be, based on Argentina's history and reputation, probably a middling team. You look at last 16 quarterfinals, maybe the odd semifinal if they get the look of the draw. Um, obviously, with Messi, he raises them infinitely. We all know the virtues of Messi, and he was there for all to see, sometimes showboating, sometimes showing his just immense strength and um, you know everything that you'd expect technically from the great man. We all know he lights games up, had a hand in uh, in two of the three goals. Um, really, the, the main sparks from Argentina came from Julian Alvarez and Alexis McAllister down the left-hand side. You felt as though together or separately they could spark something in that left hand, uh, left half space, really. McAllister, his pressing was effective in places, especially when Croatia wanted to slow things down. Um, Alvarez's runs in the left half space were frequent and they've paid off eventually, didn't they? Uh, ball of the top, which caught Croatia really on the hop. Maybe it was a surprise that Luka Modric had lost the ball so high up the pitch. Um, and Alvarez takes a ball around the goalkeeper, gets absolutely flattened by him. Correct decision, red, uh, yellow card rather, um, and a penalty. And Lionel Messi just absolutely slaps it into the top corner. He was actually absolutely never in doubt. Never, never in doubt. His top Argentine goal scoring a World Cup, which just feels right, doesn't it? With 11 goals, he's overtaken such luminaries as Gabriel Batistuta in his homeland and elsewhere. He's overtaken Gary Lineker, which I'm sure Gary Lineker will be loving that. And Julian uh, Alvarez got the second on the counter from a corner. <laughs> a tremendous piece of luck, a couple of pieces of luck, really. Um, runs into the defender, bounces off him, bounces back off Alvarez, and then Sosa hacks a clearance, and he just keeps running in a straight line like he's got that uh, weird sort of sphere of, of invincibility in Sonic the Hedgehog or something like that. It was really something to behold, and even the, the Livakovic, the goalkeeper, didn't spread himself. He sort of turned and stuck his right arm out a little bit, so even he seemed flummoxed by the... By by a concept that he got through their defence really single-handedly. But it was a stunning move. And Molina's run sort of catches Bonasosa off guard and that's why he shanks the clearance. If he's not there, he cleans him out and he clears the ball and it's 1-0 going into the half. Um, but really, there was still a quite slight question mark on Argentina heading into the uh, second half. Croatia famously, they trailed in the 2018 semi-final as well. Who can remember that? Absolutely everybody. And Argentina, they haven't been great while holding leads in this tournament. They, of course, went from leading to losing against Saudi Arabia in their opener. They lost a two-goal lead in the last seven minutes against the Netherlands and did even look shaky against Australia in the last 16. Um, but Croatia, it never seemed on, did it? Juranovic wasn't performing any of those forward runs from right back, which has made him one of the better fullbacks in this competition so far. The midfield looked as though they were desperately in need of half-time. Messi on his own at the, towards the back end of the second half, buoyed by confidence was running them absolutely ragged. And Livakovic didn't really look confident until he had to pluck out an unbelievable save from Alexis McAllister from a corner, uh, which almost made it 3-0, of course. And even where you say that Croatia's strong points are, crosses into the box, you've got maybe a couple of big men in the box. There's nobody really in the box. That's probably one of the risks with Andre Kramaric playing him as a nine. They look to change that in the second half, but the crosses still weren't any, anything close to... Uh, 
to trouble in this Argentine defence, which if you, th- you think about maybe Saudi Arabia and a couple of, well, we now know that was just a fluke, don't we? And um, obviously the uh, the head-losing exercise against the Netherlands in the final 10 minutes. Um, in terms of their defence, Argentina have looked as good as any in the tournament. Now, of course, Morocco stand head and shoulders above anybody in that respect in this tournament. But Argentina, they, they didn't come close to conceding in this match, really. Um, fair play to Zlatko Kodalic. He did try and change things. Borna Sosa and Mario Pasolic came off for Nikola Vlasic and Mislav Orsic at half-time. They retained that 4-3-3, or probably more so a 4 2 3 one um, Kramaric went to a number 10 position Ivan Perisic moved back into left back and you could tell Juranovic had been told get up that pitch because there's absolutely nothing in terms of wit from Croatia um, and all that happened and all it did was uh, serve to make the game more transitional Croatia had a lot less control which doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing um, Argentina were more of a threat on the counter Croatia, they did know that they had to concede chances in return to getting closer to that Argentine goal. Petkovic had, um, he came on in the 50th minute for Marcelo Brozovic and the 4-2-3-1 was amplified even more there with Modric moving back almost in between the two defenders at times. And Argentina saw this threat. They, they had a little bit of a good spell, 10-15 minutes to start the first half off. And um, Lionel Scaloni, fair play to him. We saw that threat. Argentina moved back to the 3-5-2, what they used against the Netherlands. But this time, crucially, they didn't have that massive, massive disaster of the last 10, 15 minutes where the game slowly, slowly edged away from them. And to be fair, the Croatia didn't pose anywhere near the kind of threat that the Netherlands did. And fair enough, Argentina countered and it was a little piece of... Lionel Messi, brilliance. The best striker, the best forward at this World Cup so far. Rince, the best centre-half at this World Cup so far in Josko Vardiol. A bit of a change of pace a couple of times and then burst beyond him. Fed Julian Alvarez in for his fourth goal. And it gives him a bit of a whiff of the golden boot as well as Messi. And if France are to beat Morocco, we've got a fall pronged race for that golden boot in Bappe Giroud on the blue side and in the Albi Celeste side, Messi and Alvarez. But if we are to see Argentina versus France, France will have to be on top of their game and we will delve more into that. France versus Morocco after this short break. Welcome back to today's show. We have got one finalist in the bag, although I don't particularly know who it is because we are recording this little preview and second half of the show beforehand, of course, as is tradition on the What If Football Daily podcast for this World Cup anyway. So we've got to preview the other semi-final and then we'll get on to some, uh, get on some sober England thoughts with a, a few days that have passed since the quarterfinal elimination. So France versus Morocco, and really there is no way that Morocco should be here. And that's not because they're lowly ranked in the FIFA World Rankings. It's not because of where they're from. It's because, well, the amount of injuries they have got, the teams that they have beaten, is quite simply ridiculous. But, of course, they have broken down barriers of the first largely Arab nation to be at a World Cup quarterfinal and obviously resultingly semi-final. They are the first African nation to reach a World Cup semi-final. 
with six games in the bag undefeated, if you count the last one from the previous World Cup against Spain, they are the longest, hold the longest African undefeated record at six games. And that's without the likes of Amina Harit, Imran Loser, Adam Messina, all missing the World Cup. Statistically, though, if you think about the run they've been on, not conceding from the hands of the opposition at all up until the semi-final, um, they are what you call champions. If you're going to take the four semi-final teams that we had and you think about defences often win these tournaments, these World Cups, and if this... Moroccan team are to win. I would say this is the even greater a shock than Greece winning the European Championships in 2004. It's built on similar similar foundations, a solid a solid defensive display. They beat a couple of the the better teams in this World Cup as well. If you think, well, Belgium probably weren't the best, but reputation wise, they were the, one of the best. You've got wins over Portugal, Spain without conceding a goal, and go back to two thousand and four. You've got Greece beating Portugal. You've got them holding Spain as well in the groups. You've got them beating Portugal again in the. Uh, in the final, and Czech Republic, in my opinion, in that tournament were the best team in it, and Greece beat them too in extra time as well. And another team that Greece did beat in 2004 were France in the quarterfinals. 1-0 it was then, and I think if if Morocco are to win this um, and outside of a penalty shootout, it will have to be 1-0. They've not been behind yet in the tournament, and of course with the talent at the disposal of France, they could easily do that. Likewise, they could have done against the likes of Croatia in the first instance. We're not even discussed that they drew 0-0 with them in the opening game, which could be a, could be if, um, if the semi-final that is to be recorded... <laughs> later on goes the way of Croatia we could see Morocco versus Croatia of course this is before this, that semi-final in terms of Morocco we know exactly what they're gonna what they're gonna bring to the table they're gonna be stoic defensively they'll be an incredible test for this French team Sofian Amrabat and uh, Unahi and Almala either side of him in that wonderful midfield three that's um, just blocks anything, will tackle anything. And um, with the hard runners of Sofian Bufal, who, who won't be able to last 90 minutes as he hasn't done throughout the tournament, but he will be uh, crucial to any counter-attacks. You've also got Hakim Ziyech, obviously. You've got Yusuf Ennisiri, no more dangerous a front three than uh, any other any other team left in this tournament, really. If you think about it, I think Morocco have got a better front three than Croatia going into these semi-finals. Um, in terms of what they've been able to do and how uh, prolific they have been when they have been in front of goal. And, uh, of course, the defence is battered due to injuries. Now, they started off with Sai Seguer, uh, Mazraoui and Hakimi, and it looks as though we'll be just be down to Hakimi for this game. Although, Valid Regragi hasn't ruled out any player, but look at the way Sais was bandaged up, his hamstring was bandaged up for the quarterfinal, and he limped off then. You struggle to see how he plays a part. You struggle to see how uh, Nea Figuered plays a part. He tore his thigh muscle, which is a three-week, at the very most, um, injury. He missed the last game, of course. El Yamik was superb, of course, in his replacement. And um, so too the uh, the fullback for Masrawi as well. And Ashraf Hakimi, we all know his virtues and how good he is. He's one of the best right-backs in world football at the minute, of course. Hakim... 
Hakimi versus uh, Kylian Mbappe is a battle we uh, would love to see. But having uh, having gone through England versus France and how Mbappe was relatively quiet, yet were defeated um, with the likes of Chouameni scoring the first goal with the likes of Antoine Griezmann, in my opinion, putting in a man of the match performance and Olivier Giroud scoring the match winner. You know, it's not just killing Mbappe. And Reg Raggi has said there's no specific plan to target Mbappe. They will be going for all three of those danger men. They have to. There won't be too many instances where France are pushed. Uh, it will be a completely different test to the uh, to the England game where France could get uh, something on the counter, which uh, very, very much looked like the better avenue against England in the quarterfinals. And... Um, They'll have to break them down. They'll have to break them down like Spain tried and failed, like Portugal tried and failed, and like every other team, barring some freak Aguered own goal against Canada. They've all tried, they've all failed, and that includes Croatia as well. And uh, speaking of, alluding to England, well, well, we'll round off today's show with some more sober thoughts about the England team. Now, of course, I uh, did review England versus France earlier on in the week, but of course, um, it <laughs> was uh, a tight deadline between full-time and uh, the 5 a.m. release schedule that I've backed myself into a corner for, even even uh, in the uh, lighter World Cup schedule uh, throughout um, the quarterfinals and semifinals. So my first bullet point, really, is that Gareth Southgate shouldn't go. If you think about what he's done, even if he hadn't had that body of work behind him before this World Cup, there is only 18 months before the Euros. There's certainly, in my opinion, a, a place for him in the FA beyond Euro 2024 if it's not England manager. I don't think particularly he should be England manager after the European Championships in 2024 if there is a viable and um, probably English replacement. Jamie Carragher's got caught a bit of flack um, for suggesting that the England manager should be English. But if you think about European teams and teams that uh, have won tournaments, the only foreigner to manage a, a winning team in either the World Cup or the European Championships was German Otto Rehagel for Greece in 2004. So it's not just because it's England and little Englanders, it's the fact that that is the... That is the sequence. That is that is what happens in World Cups and European Championships. It will happen again this time round with um, either Lionel Scaloni or Zlatko Dalic being in charge of their home countries. So too Didier Deschamps and Walid Regragi of France and Morocco, respectively. So that is, in my opinion, it has to be probably English. Now you look at Sven-Goran Eriksson, Fabio Capello, huge names along the likes of names that have been banded around, foreign names that have been banded around most First and foremost, Maurizio Pochettino seemed like he was putting himself in the shop window before the tournament. Um, they're of a similar vein. Um, Ericsson and Capello, a bit more successful by way of trophies than Pochettino, but we all know how good Pochettino football is. Um, and Ericsson and Capello were seen to have under under um, underachieved. Ericsson was gifted the golden generation, which I don't think player for player is... Um, is any worse than what England have at the minute. And if you look at Ericsson, that's three quarterfinals in a row. You've got to count Steve McLaren, even though he did try to move away from it a little bit. And that's a failure to qualify for a tournament. 
Fabio Capello was um, naming for Euro 2012 in the build-up at least and the 2010 World Cup older squads that still had the remnants of the golden generation and didn't even get to a quarter-final. So that really shows how well Gareth Southgate's done, not only to make a semi-final, a final. He's um, restored most of the faith in English football and really it's just down to a little bit of bad luck and of course with it with it being England a little bit of penalties as well Harry Kane's penalty going over which I think under against any other goalkeeper I think he'd have scored both of those but because not because Hugo Lloris is the best penalty saver I think we've got in Dominic Livakovic and uh, Yasina Bono um the two, two better and uh, Emmy Martinez as well really to be fair uh, we've got three better penalty savers than Hugo Lloris, but because it's the connection, the Spurs connection, not because the bottlers, but because they know each other inside out. We all know Harry Kane's favourite penalty and obviously the second one. He was trying to do that, but times 100 in terms of the power and he was caught between two minds with a penalty down the middle as he'd done against Colombia, which is his other favourite, I think. So it's one of those things. It's the fact that you can only be world... There's only one world champion every four years... And sometimes a little bit of luck, sometimes the best teams don't win. Not, not I'm saying that England were undisputably the best team in this World Cup. I think you've probably got four teams that you could say are, quote unquote, could be the best team at this tournament. I think England are one of them. I think France are two. And obviously, I think, in my opinion, I thought whoever was going to win that game would win the World Cup. Argentina, you got to say as well, and uh, Brazil as well. Now, Morocco, Croatia, certainly along that, along those sort of lines. Um, but in terms of the absolute, been playing good football, got through as well. You've got to say England, Brazil, Argentina, France. From those four, if either one of those won, you couldn't really have any complaints. Um, England, I thought defensively, they, they, they performed as well as you would expect from um, would-be champions. Now you can talk about the referee all you like as well. Um, certain things were stacked against England, maybe. Um, three penalties should have been awarded, which when it gets to the third penalty, I think it was uh, more obvious incrementally. The, f the first one was the least of the penalties, but it was a penalty. Um, it, they said it was outside the box. I'm still unconvinced of that. Um, and then obviously, Theo Hernandez and Aurelian Chua, many of the penalties were blatant as you could possibly get. And even the second one, he did a VAR overruling. Um, so, and, and yes, there's a lot of talk about England outplayed France. You could say, well, France didn't need to come and play outplay England. They were 1-0 ahead. They could sit off it and... Um, and just wait to counter, which I think is a perfect ploy. Um, England have been uh, guilty of doing that because they've researched Didier Deschamps teams, Fernando Santos teams, i.e. teams that were successful. Of tournaments gone by from Europe, and it's only what Walid Regragi is doing with Morocco, who's proved incredibly successful um, for the only African team to reach a World Cup semi-final. So these, there are virtues about playing that way. But France's defence in my opinion, looked a bit ragged, looked a bit raw, even though I think Diopa Makana has been one of the better centre-halves at the tournament. I think Harry Kane gave him a bit of a nightmare. But Kaya certainly in the second half, had the beating of Theo Hernandez. And uh, England, they, they were the better team. Um, I don't think that necessarily means you deserve to win. 
Um, but in terms of eliminations, I think it's the most blameless tournament elimination I could possibly think of. In my lifetime, in my time supporting England, it's up there with, um, well, neither of them really, like maybe Brazil 2002, but then you, you can always use David Seaman as a scapegoat. Here, of course, the scapegoat is going to be Harry Kane for missing a penalty. Uh, but I think we, England, played better than France. We lost a 50-50 game. Um, but in, in in a bizarre, backwards sort of way, going from a semi-final where you didn't expect to a final where you probably expected a final and then quarter-final, which some would say is par, like Gary Neville said, some would say is par, the expectation, minimum expectation. Some would say is an underachievement. I would say it is be probably being found out by the draw. If you look at the semi-final, the finals of... Um, of years gone by and the likes of Sweden and Colombia to get to the semi-finals, the likes of uh, Ukraine to get to the semi-final in 2020 and then Denmark in 2020 uh, as well. And it's not as though England haven't beaten a, a good opposition at a major tournament before you look at Croatia and Germany. Um, Senegal is certainly not a bad team overnight. I mean, certainly they would have been a um, a good team if France would have snuck by them 1-0, is, is all I'm saying. Um, so to beat them 3-0, I think even with injury suspensions, I think is a very, very, very good result. One of the better knockout stage results I can remember. Well, for me, it it's begins and ends with Germany in 2020. Yes, they may have been on the back nine, still a big team. So I've, I don't think that's a, a thing that you can level at Southgate, really. And the fact that it's the best, probably the best thing to happen to English football since Alf Ramsey stumbled upon a, a narrow wingless formation in in the build-up to 1966. That's what won England the World Cup then when there were cries for him to go, some cries for him to, to be leaving the tournament in the build-up to the quarterfinals against Argentina, proved them all wrong, won the World Cup. And for me, Southgate's England on a trajectory, and I don't think even post-Southgate, if he stays with the FA, if he doesn't, um, in my opinion, I hope he does, and I hope he... He stays until 2024 at the very least. Um, but I think there's a, there's a long, successful future, regardless of the manager. I don't think it's right to change the manager at this stage. The FA certainly won't be the one to, to make that decision. I think it'll be all Southgate's, in Southgate's hands at this time anyway. 2024 may be a different story. We don't know what's going to happen. But if you look at some of the ages of some of the players, I mean, England's three best performers at this tournament, I would say Bukayo Saka, Jude Bellingham, Phil Foden, I think you could put in there as well. Marcus Rashford, maybe. All of them not even at their peak yet. And yes, there are there are some players that, you know, may need, will need to be replaced soon. You're probably still looking um, with a 4-3-3 that Southgate played. Jordan Henderson, I felt as though um, probably could have been taken off a bit earlier in the game against France. And substitutions will always be levelled at Gareth Southgate as well. I think it's probably the only weak area of his um, appointment, really, in his six years, uh, is the um, is the substitutions. For example, Jack Grealish, 98th minute, which was a bit of a head-scratcher. Um, you can't lie about that one. Can't <laughs> sugarcoat that one. It was. Um, but, you know, you go 18 months wiser into the next tournament, of course, um, which England have always improved their sort of knowledge base from year to from tournament to tournament, from cycle to cycle. I don't think this cycle is over just yet. Nobody forgets that Jude Bellingham is 19 years old. Phil Foden isn't at his peak. And even players like Kyle Walker, who will need to be replaced either now or 
probably more so the Euros. You've got a, a couple of very good replacements in Reese James and Trent Alexander-Arnold. But if you look at the the, the manager who, who will replace the manager, if we're saying he's English, there's four viable. Well, three really, because Steve Cooper isn't English. <laughs> he's Welsh. But you've got Eddie Howe. You've got... Um, You've got Graham Potter, both of which are in long-term projects at the minute. And then you've got Sean Dyche. So that's the third best option that England have in terms of an English manager. But if you are to extend that into British, then Steve Cooper, an FA man, the only living English manager, to win a World Cup, being the under-17s, obviously he'll know a lot of the players, Phil Foden starred in that uh, under-17s World Cup win, of course, as well. So those are the four viable options. Um, only one of them is unemployed. I, I don't think you can really look to Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard at this point, but if they prove themselves a bit more, maybe. Uh, maybe Stephen Gerrard, Frank Lampard, maybe they're more suited to international management. Like we saw Gareth Southgate, he got relegated with Middlesbrough two years there after the back of his uh, playing career, so he wasn't... the. Easily the obvious choice to be England manager stepping forward, stepping in after Roy Hodgson, Sam Allardyce. So it may come from left field. It may be Lee Carsley making that promotion from under 21s just as Southgate did. Oh, it could easily be Stephen Jard is a better fit for international football management. I'm not entirely convinced yet, but of course, you've got to be open to suggestions. So you've probably got really there the seven options that England have going forward for the next maybe 15, 20 years, the next, you know, eight tournaments, I think will be probably be divvied up between those seven managers. Unless the FA go in a completely different direction, you never know. You never know these things. And of course, new managers could come to the boil um, in the meantime. But the next tournament is 18 months away. England have got a young squad. They've got a very, very, very good manager who knows how to handle this sort of situation. And I think a longer sort of transition phase of having the the exit point for Southgate Telegraph for the European Championships and whatever happens at those Euros, it may not matter. It's more of a case of building to the World Cup in 2026, depending on what the FAC fit. I think the future is still bright. I think the transition is still there despite, you know, in terms of modes of elimination, it's not gone from four from three to two to first, has it? It's gone probably more so four, three, two, and then I would say fifth or maybe sixth if you count Brazil as ahead of England, which I personally wouldn't. Maybe that's national bias. Who knows? Probably. But um, fifth or sixth, don't really matter. Small margins is all I'll say. So now we've rambled about England. We've previewed France versus Morocco. We'll talk about France versus Morocco tomorrow so that's all, all we've got time for today so until next time thank you very much for listening for watching if you have done on youtube but until next time silly Podcast Network.